Welcome to the last ever in the Thick of It podcast with myself, Colin Lambert, and Galen Stobbs. The reason it's the last ever in the Thick of It is because, well, all I can say, Galen, is that two people walked out of Happy Valley races last night, very happy people, after taking out the last for the winner and the Quinella. Um, we are currently sipping champagne. Cheers. In plastic glasses, I might add. <laughs> and this deciding what Caribbean islands we wish to buy. Julie, if you're listening, uh, this serves as our notice. We will no longer be working for PL henceforth. Yeah. And so th- on that basis, let's go as loose as we can on this, <laughs> on this podcast. Um, so we are in Sydney in a very spectacular hotel room in uh, Hong Kong, looking out over the city. We've just completed our Hong Kong conference. Uh, Tuesday was our Singapore conference. So we thought we'd run over a few of those key themes. Galen, what I want to start with, I think, is the um, a hot topic that actually is always interesting when you come to Asia, and that is um, the geopolitical macroeconomic sessions that we have. Um, this week, the key themes were the de-dollarisation and also the future of the RMB. You moderated in Singapore. Um, what do you think on, you know, what's your takeaway from, from what we heard from our speakers? So, so it, it was interesting because um, two things were consistent on the panels in Singapore and Hong Kong, which is when I said to the panelists in Singapore, I said to them, you know, do you think that kind of the, the quote unquote weaponization of, of the US dollar is going to negatively impact its kind of role at the very center of, of the global financial system? And everybody on the panel agreed that, that they felt that it would, but the effects probably wouldn't be felt immediately. But everyone definitely kind of agreed that, that they do think it hurt this. And similarly, on your panel earlier today, you know, there was talk of, of this push for de-dollarization and that people increasingly have an incentive to move away from the US dollar, right? Um, and we've seen a few examples of that. I mean, uh, uh, Russia and Iran recently agreed to, to use a different payment system to SWIFT yeah. is one example of trying to get away from this dollar-based... Yeah. Uh, you know, uh, financial system. Um, the, the, the problem is, right, and I come back to so remember, everybody says there is this incentive to move away. We've seen, you know, in the last BIS survey, for example, taken earlier this year, the dollar increased by like 2%. But yeah. it, its level has been fairly static if you go back. But it's level at 87%. But, but that, that's what and I mean. That's, and that's the thing, it's huge, isn't it? I mean, 82. <laughs> Just say I don't care anymore. I've resigned. <laughs> <laughs> no, but but so so it's it's level. Yeah. Um, but uh, I I do think it's an interesting question. Yeah. Um, I do think there's there is more than ever an incentive to move away from it. The problem I have, and the problem a few people have said, move away to what? Like yeah. what is what is the realistic alternative? Right. I mean, yes, we've seen you know. A slight push to I don't know like uh, price some you know energies energy products in RMB or something like yeah. that. The the euro when it was first introduced actually if you look at the graphs which I think will be in the is going to be in the next edition of PNL printed that people can see you can see the euro actually has a big increase but the problem is post financial crisis yeah. Europe's been in its own turmoil and crisis ever since there's still lingering doubts about the euro yep. you know 20 and, plus years on and Brexit affects the euro right that's the thing I mean you're actually taking out a very viable large economy from the eurozone not from the euro itself but from the European Union right so even if I want to even if I 
you know, whatever country I'm, I, I'm sick of the the dollar being weaponized, and I want yeah. something that's just a utility function. And there's and all all of these arguments against it. What do I do? What do I? What currency do I buy? Right, the euro yeah. would be the only alternative viable alternative, but it's not really right now, and hasn't been for a while. That was an interesting one because today I, I asked my panelists on the on this panel in Hong Kong the question about you know the RMB as reserve currency and. They gave me some really good answers about why it works, but I'm still come back to being a basic trader. And I get why it would, you know, the, the US could actually look at this and go, that's not a bad idea. Because if you do get the RMB as reserve currency, then what's going to happen? A lot of reserve managers around the world are going to buy a shed load of RMB and sell dollars. So therefore, Trump gets his weaker dollar remembi. The problem is, A, we're not seeing that in the markets because I don't think the, the shift is quick enough. And B, I'm not convinced the Chinese want it. Now, what, so I'm disagreeing with one of my speakers today, I, I should add, who was very firm that actually the Chinese do want um, reserve status. But I kind of look at it and think, you lose control when you become the reserve currency. Do they want that? So, so that's an interesting question. And actually, this plays into, there was actually disagreement between, uh, they don't realize it, obviously, our, our panel in Singapore and our panel in Hong Kong today, mm. which was in, in Singapore, um, we talked about why, according to the latest BIS numbers, the growth of the RMB is kind of stagnated relative to the overall market. And one of the reasons people gave, because, you know, the 2016 survey, that was one of the big growth stories, right? Yeah. It jumped up into the top 10. I was included yeah. in the IMF's special drawing rights basket. Yep. You know, everybody's like, oh, it's internationalizing and it's becoming a much bigger part of the market. Simultaneously, you had a platform like EBS saying, oh, you know, we call it the, the minor major now because, you know, it trades the same way and it's one of our yep. biggest currencies. So it's, that seems the narrative, right? But the panel in Singapore said very much that actually in the intervening time between 2016 and the status survey, the, the policy and the emphasis from China is actually they've cooled on the idea of internationalization and being a yep. global reserve currency, which was actually at odds with what one person said today, where, yep. they, where they were talking like China was still very intent in moving from a trade currency to a global reserve currency. So I thought that was actually kind of an interesting mm. disparity. Well, it kind of shows that nobody really knows. Right. It's one of those things where we're like, well, we think we know what's going to happen, but actually do they want the consequences of what we think will happen? But, but, but on the point of losing control, right, I think one interesting thing on the de-dollarization <laughs> point was um, today someone argued that that the U.S. is going to become less relevant globally because they're st taking a step back or they're trying to take a step back within globally part of their kind of America first policy, right? Mm -hmm. and, and that China is in many ways stepping into this void or trying yeah. to. Now, that actually uh, rhymes with something that I, I was talking to another investment firm recently. Um, and they were kind of saying, exactly, they were saying the only way they see the dollar losing its current status in the kind of global financial service is two things. One, if a better alternative shows up, yeah, and they're like, of which there is none right now. No. They're like, two, if the, if the US abdicates its role, yeah. and they're saying, and there's an intellectual strain right now in the US, yeah. which says that actually being the global reserve currency, to your point about control, is actually not beneficial to the US. Trump's been and, trying to get the dollar lower for how long and, and he's failed miserably because it's a reserve currency. And, that's it. and people are yeah. buying, people buy the treasuries, but not yeah. their products. Yeah. And what they want to say to people is buy our products, not the treasuries. Yeah. Um, and so, 
you know, assuming assuming a Trump victory, for example, in 2020, does that kind of abdication from its role at the, at the heart of the financial system continue? That's possible. Um, and, and, I'm, and so I think that would aid the, the de-dollarization <laughs> argument. I still, I just still don't see what the alternative is, though. Well, I look at it and go, the euro was developed in a um, society that is open, democratic, um, reasonably coherent. <laughs> all things, all things that would actually how the times have changed. Exactly, exactly. Yeah. <laughs> but all things that would actually you know appeal to a reserve manager. Um, and all things that probably, you know, if the US said we're going to have our reserve status diminished and we've got to share it with someone, their option would be to share it with Europe, I would suggest. The problem is, is that if Europe can't do it, I don't see how in the current situation China can. And to your point, I don't see how anyone can. I mean, interestingly, it, it was a little while ago now I've been on the road for, for five weeks, but at our Copenhagen conference, uh, the question was put to some of the speakers on one of the panels there. Do global reserves still matter? And the, the, the question, the answer from most of the panelists was not as much as they did a few years ago, no. um, which I thought was kind of an interesting point. Is that short termism though? Because I look at it and go, yeah, it doesn't really matter until it does. Well, and yeah, because let's face it, every currency crisis has been brought about by a lack of reserves. True, but I, I think it's equally true that, that it maybe doesn't matter as much right now as it did a few yeah. years ago, yeah. but in a year's time, it could matter much more yeah. than it does now. I don't think the two are kind of mutually exclusive. This is where we've mentioned Gordon Brown. <laughs> Selling off UK's gold at $140 an ounce just before it went to 1000 yeah. yeah. Seriously, Brown, you owe me still. I pay taxes on that. Well, you know, no one hits sixes every shot. Not that I'm defending that terrible decision. <laughs> no, it's fair enough, yeah. No one gets every trading decision right, as was pointed out today by several of my panellists. No, no one no one will wins big on the last race at, at Happy, Happy Valley. Valley. Apart from us. Yes, that was a high five. Okay, <laughs> moving on. Um, the other thing that I found quite interesting, so we opened up our Asian swing with a, a panel session on building a Asian liquidity swing. Hub. So they, we're swinging through Asia, mate. Like, that's what they do in US um, elections. Isn't it? They have a, like a, a southern state swing, I, don't I, they? I was just checking I understood that right because there was room for misinterpretation there. <laughs> uh, over, overloaded detail. We don't need that. Um, liquidity hubs. We're talking – we had a panel on um, the – uh, efforts by the MAS in Singapore to get a liquidity hub there. And I, I guess first thing to say is I did actually serve as a – it is quite surprising that the third biggest centre in terms of FX volume uh, actually hasn't had one of these for the last 10 years. Um, and I was told afterwards privately that apparently the plan's been going for five years and yeah. that SDMS have gone, have gone public you know, in the last year. Yeah, so I actually spoke to a few people who were in the audience who told me they were like, oh, it was really interesting because they'd known about this for some time. Yeah. But there just wasn't enough to say because it wasn't, to use their words, real yet. Yeah. And they're like, now it's real. There's actually something to kind of discuss and debate and get into it. I also think there's an element of control in the timing, though. I think, you know, the MAS have turned around and said, we're ready to go now. And now all of a sudden, everyone wants to talk about it. It's Singapore, mate. What do you... An element of control? Well, all I would say say is that I found it really interesting because um, the question I repeatedly put to the um, panellists, and they repeatedly knocked it back and decided to talk about something else, was, 
um, where's the buy side? So this, this was, I actually thought, one of the key points from that panel. And, and actually, someone kind of did address this. I mean, someone said yeah. that they actually said it, the elephant in the room here yes. is still the fact yeah. that um, without the clients, you can have all the platforms, which they don't, yeah. all the liquidity providers, which they don't, yeah. um, but, but they do have some of each, let's be, yeah, yeah, be clear. Yeah. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. It's definitely progress has been made. Yeah. Um, but you could, have, you could have all of that, but if you don't have the clients there willing to trade, then it's not going anywhere. And there is a certain amount of inertia yeah. people highlighted. Like, you have to really make the case if, if I'm, you know, trading through a matching engine in TY3 or whatever, you have to really make the case for why it's going to be beneficial to my business to move it. Like, and, and sometimes, you know... Or even to add to it, it's a duplication cost. I mean, you know, this is not an insignificant right. cost. Right, exactly. Yeah. Um, and, and I think another interesting point was made by someone who said that the other problem is that isn't necessarily a first mover advantage no. to being in the Singapore yeah. um, hub, Right. Which is like you you might gain like there's no intrinsic benefit really to being first, whereas you can wait till liquidity. If you if you're especially if you're a bigger player, yeah, you can wait till liquidity builds up and then move in and then <clears throat> unless the MAS. I mean, obviously the MAS is giving incentives to firms to locate there now, and if those incentives end, then obviously there would be the extra cost. Um, but we don't know they will. Yeah, I mean, so I, I spoke to one platform provider a while ago. Yeah. Um, and this was when they were thinking about moving in there. And the way they described it to me was they were like, the incentives being provided means this is basically a free hit. Yeah. Right. So like, it's, it's, there's no real downside to them. Like they yeah. build it out. If it goes somewhere, great. They're now like an, an integral part of the new liquidity hub being developed yeah. in Singapore. If it doesn't, kind of no skin off their nose because yeah. the incentives were, were good enough to begin with. Oh, it's interesting. I, I made the point that, you know, I've, I've two points that I made um, to one of the panelists was a liquidity hub with all LPs or a market with all LPs is actually not much of a market in the modern sense. The other thing I would I pointed out as well, which I think is still quite significant, is um, none of the primary venues have committed to an SG1. And... We know from the data you know, and the reports that come out about market data that a huge amount of FX pricing is derived from the primary venues. Their volumes may be going down, and actually this week they reported volumes, and again, they went down more than the, what we could maybe call the secondary venues, but they went down, um, but they're still vitally important in terms of data. Um, without them, where do we go as well? So on a sidebar, I'm just looking at my notes from this panel. And I've just written in massive letters and drawn a box around it, yen. Hmm. No idea what that means. <laughs> well, I, so I, I, I at the time, it unlocks like a lot of things for me. It's but, a good job that we, it's a good job we don't, haven't got to do this anymore because we we're just come up with random words now. But no, I think what you're talking about there is actually when we're saying, well, yeah, the yen is still the third biggest traded currency in the world. And um, that's never going to move from Tokyo. So therefore, what currency pair is going to be the driver of SG1. Right. Um, Because, yeah, is it going to be the euro? It could well be the euro, but there's a shed load of euro yen goes through the market. So that's kind of like the incentive there is to stay there. The primary market for euro and yen is EBS. They've already said at this moment in time they're not going to be going to SG1. So is it sterling? Is it Swiss? 
is it Aussie? None of them are really going to be able to do it. I mean, so, so that that's one thing. And um, uh, another thing is, right, which is this is probably more of a, a long-term challenge, the liquidity up there. But I did, from the audience, raise the point, which was in the latest, again, going back to the BIS numbers, it yeah. was noticeable that mainland China jumped up Still very small. Yeah. I should emphasize that. But mainland China jumped up a number of places and is now, I think, the 13th, well, I know, the 13th largest FX trading hub. Yeah. Right? Um, now, again, I stress, it's still very small in comparison to a lot of them. But, right, is is if you're trying to build out a liquidity, because one of the questions you asked was like, okay, how far does this go? Do we start having like a hub in SH, Malaysia or yeah, SH1? Yeah. yeah. Like, like Shanghai one. How many do yeah. we need? And like, particularly because, you know, the Chinese market is obviously such a big one, right? Yeah. If, if we have that, like, do we need, okay, you could make a case maybe that you need like a, a TY3 and a SG1, right? Hmm. But then do you need an SG1, an SH1 and a TY3? You know, suddenly it starts, and I think well, my read on on the answers that were given was that in the long term it would be competition mm-hmm. for an SG three. I don't think anyone thought there was going to be, uh, you know, an a, an Equinix data center in there anytime soon, for example. No, but but I do think that that was an interesting data point. Yeah, that that, that mainland China grew so much in terms of FX trading, in, in relative to where it was. I should stress it. Yeah, yeah. Base. Couple of things. Um, actually, and they kind of loop back to what we were just talking about, reserve currencies and so on. Um, it's interesting to me that the 13th most current, uh, traded currency or centre and the 8th most traded currency are being talked about in terms of reserve status. Um, what happens to like 3, 4, 5, 6 and 7? Um, we're assuming they're going to overtake that one. Well, the pound won't be worth anything in like, uh, on January 31st, will it? Oh, who knows, mate? Who knows? <laughs> it could be worth nothing on December the 13th. Are you? It's like, anything could happen there, yeah. Um, and I think the other thing is as well that um, if you look at where data centres have been built up, um, it started, obviously it was London and New York. They were the first two. Um, EBS with its historical strength in yen added Tokyo but they were situated in the most dominant economies as was um, in the U- in terms of the US yeah. and they're also situated in terms of the most dominant foreign exchange market I mean London's a given yeah. you know, with, with half of foreign exchange trade going through London it's always going to be where you're going to put it but and, when and you a look- geographical location right? <laughs> yes exactly yeah but the US the US data centres are there because not because it's a huge um, foreign exchange centre it is but it's not actually growing that much. Um, I mean, I thought it was interesting that um, the MAS have made a point of saying, actually, we're growing quicker than the US. And in FX swaps, we're very close to overtaking the US in terms of turnover. You know, there's definitely some sort of play there. But, but what was interesting was, and this was the, the data point I raised, while the China, mainland China grew, Tokyo Hong Kong and Singapore yeah. as the three existing major agent hubs together lost a percentage of market share. <clears throat> but this is a problem with the BI survey because um, Hong Kong dollar was the biggest jump by any currency pair. Yeah. And I'm, I'm looking at there. I mean, we're, we're currently putting to bed the last issue of the year of PL and we're talking about the BIS report. And my one of my stories is like, this is basically a document of paradoxes. 
where everywhere you look there's a question about the number like that doesn't compute with what we're being told and what people are, are seeing well, the, the, are you talking about the Hong Kong dollar specifically there or just the whole report I mean you know was, people were expecting sorry spot volumes are up 20% when every platform was down 20% in the worst months of the year so far um, you know we get the swap volumes we get that yeah. um, but it's 6.6 .6 trillion we're going to we thought it'd be about 5.86 okay so, so let's talk about another paradox that came up on one of the panels which was uh, prime brokerage activity yeah. this was this was actually one of my favourite bits at yes. the Singapore conference <laughs> so the question came in which was uh, the 1.5 trillion of uh, the overall turnover was prime brokerage activity, yep. which represented a 68% increase from 2016. 67.8% actually, Kevin, I think you'll find. <laughs> Touche. Carry on. <laughs> this guy. We're going to have to buy separate islands at this point. <laughs> we're going to carry I on with we this. Were. Yeah. <laughs> Um, but but it, so so the the question was put to the uh, the panelists. Um, oh, so, the, so there was a sixty eight percent increase in uh, PB volume. Uh, does this does this consistent with what you're seeing? And the answer was, and then it was a little bit more, and then just a tiny bit more, and then the, the one clearing person on yeah, the panel went, "I'll take this one." Yeah. <laughs> And it was quite a good one. And I, and I did turn around. I also, I thought, as a moderator, what I should do now is actually try and make my panelists feel more comfortable. So what I did, of course, was double down by saying, well, at least this sounds like your bonus check should be really good this year. <laughs> um, at which point they all tried to exit stage left. I mean, but there, there's a genuine point there. I mean, the, the fact is, you know, we talk, we live in a world of credit constraints, according to everyone out there. We live in a world where PBs are like questioning the value of some of the stuff they're doing. We live um, in a world where we've talked about FX clearing a lot in the last week. And we've, well, and actually to your point today in your panel today, you open up by saying, we've been talking about 10 years ago, we were talking about FX clearing as being the next big thing. And we're still talking about FX clearing being the next big thing. Um, clearly, there's there's a disconnect between what the clients want and what the regulators would hope for. PB does a good enough job. Um, to go back to the PB thing, what was interesting was I spoke to someone in the PB space, quite a large provider, because I think we had someone who said, look, we have seen that sort of growth in the past three years. However, in 2016, we literally had just launched a prime brokerage business. Whereas I spoke to a major PB and they went, I honestly do not know where that number came from. We do not see that at all. And this PB has had a fairly successful year. Um, they've picked up clients partly because of the city thing. They've been one of the PBs that's picked up from the city decision to get rid of certain clients. Um, but they went, I do not see that number and they've actually said they're going to go back to the BIs and say you need to be more transparent or understand clearer how you account for this volume because I kind of get it personally that's, that's the strange thing for me is I kind of get it because I look at it and go there's this big thing I wrote when the BIs report came out so like, there's this thing called other flow in the BIs report and it went up to half a trillion dollars from 174 and we're all going like What's other? What does that mean? And I saw, well, is this where retail aggregator stuff's going? And if you look at that, so that's gone up like 300 billion. PB's gone up 
Okay, he's, this is. I'm, I'm about to fall. I'm about to fall on oh, yeah. my sword here. Yeah. He's got up like you know, six hundred billion. Just got up more than double. But at least that's half. The, you can look at that. That's half the growth. So, so yeah. Part of my when I saw that number and it jumped out to me, and I was like, that's very inconsistent with what I hear. Yep. Then part of me was thinking like, well, to be frank, like in 2016, you know, post SMB. People were talking about it being massively constrained. I remember we did a, a survey at one of our London conferences and people cited it as the biggest That's constraint to growth. So I was like, oh, maybe I actually need to look at, actually, I need to look at the, the PB volumes in yeah, 2013, yeah. right? Now that I think about it. Because part of me was like, I'm not oh, sure they published them, to be honest. Yeah, I, I don't remember seeing a data point no, on I'm it. I'm not sure. I think this is something they published fairly recently. Yeah. But, but, but my point was, so I could see that maybe actually it was, it had such a low base in yeah. 2016. But I still, even from that, I don't just, get to 68. Sorry, sorry again, just the 887 billion. The, the, I know we won big last night. <laughs> but now we're just missing 887 billion dollars. Yeah, okay. So, 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 so that's what I mean, right? Like, uh, I think that, that if it was like, I don't know, a 30% increase, mm. 30 to 40% increase, I could get there from you. You know what? Actually, however constrained people think credit is now, it was worse in 2016. Yes. Uh, early 2016. <laughs> But I don't, I still don't get to just, and this is just like anecdotal finger in the air. This is why I love doing these podcasts, by the way, because you can, you can just say stuff like that. But my, uh, we have no knowledge of this, but it's a fact. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) I have no knowledge of this, but it's a fact that 68% feels rather high. Yes. Yeah. Um, and actually having said that, having said that, I think your, um, your point on the SMB is actually a really good one that nobody has raised to me. In all the conversations I'm having about all the different numbers around what's happening around the Biosha pool, nobody's actually turned around and said, but you do realise that the 2016 survey was taken after the SMB managed to pretty much destroy the FX world. And so therefore, every PB went whoosh, cut lines everywhere. So maybe that's... What a shame. In our last ever podcast, you come up with a moment of genius. I know, right? Every dog has its day going. Every it's dog sh- has I blame the champagne. Yes, exactly, yeah. And uh, we need to get some another one fairly soon. Um, carrying on, uh, the other big subjects matter in our conversations, we'll go into this briefly because we spoke about it last week in, um, in the podcast, is there's been a lot of conversation on the panels probably more importantly off the panels about um, the number of platforms that are is optimal, should we say, to use a modern terminology for an LP to connect to. Obviously, this all starts from cities' um, apparent decision to survey where they connect to and make cuts. I said last week I'd already had two or three people talk to me about it saying I think it's a good move. I can now update that number to seven or eight major LPs that have all said, we are at some stage of that process. Yeah, people people approach this subject very delicately. Yes, on um, the panels, definitely. Yeah, there, there was a lot of uh, oblique references and kind of dancing around the the subject matter. Um, but I, I do think that there was one interesting bit for me, which was um, when you basically try to to pin someone down about you know like are, are we being is the market being forced to recognise the value of liquidity yeah. more yeah. and has it been massively undervalued for some time yeah. which 
much as it pains me to give you credit, you have uh, maybe brought up once or twice in your opinion pieces. But um, the mine, com- not, mine not twice. The, the way that they express this, and I thought this was actually rather, rather wonderful. Um, whoever the, this person's PR person is would be very proud of them. The phrase they used was that, um, you know, we're increasingly confident expressing the value of our liquidity. Yes. Yes. It's pretty good, right? That was bad. That was pretty good because I'm yeah. sitting on like... What the hell does that mean? It's like, <laughs> I think that's a yes. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I think we're saying we're going to cut all these people off because, you know, why are we paying this money? But it was expressed so well as they're like, hmm, there's plausible, ni- plausible deniability. They definitely left themselves wiggle room. Yes, yes, definitely, yeah. I, mean, I think one thing I would say is my takeaway from this week, and obviously this is the first time we've had the opportunity to sit down with a lot of market participants in one room rather than just doing our usual grind of like, you know, phone calls and one-to-one chats is that I haven't yet found anyone beyond maybe a peripheral platform who thinks this is a bad thing. Just about everyone I've spoken to said it makes perfect sense. We have got too far. You know, there is a question around fragmentation where it stops becoming valuable. The only point I would make, though, is I had my so I did my end of term uh, panel this afternoon. I actually introduced the panel by saying it's my last panel of the year, and obviously, thanks to last night at Happy Valley, it's my last panel ever. <laughs> um, it's uh, but I turned around and said, like, you know, we were a bit loose. We're a little bit loose, I think it's fair to say. But they were the ones that turned around and said, actually, no, no. When it comes to the NDFs and platforms trying to build, you know, put competition into the NDF space, we want more fragmentation. So what they were trying to, so what I took away from that was, well, in G10, we want less fragmentation, but in the emerging markets, we want more. Because guess what? You know, we want to pay less bro, which is what this is all about. Go figure. Less bro? Yeah, brokerage. No, I know what it is. But like, I've heard you using it lately. And I feel like it's only in like the last few months. No, no, no. I was using bro. No, we refer to it as bro in the 1980s, mate. In my like, bro bill. My bro bill was in 1980. I can see my bro bill in 1983 was £30,000. I feel like you're trying to bring it back. It's like one of those things you're trying to bring back and it's not working for you. When I own my island and I have my own personal army that will be bigger than your personal army <laughs> um, and will dominate your island if you don't do this, then I'm going to bring back what I want. Um, let's close out by talking about our best takeaways then from this week. Uh, but I, I have to say I've really enjoyed both conferences um, genuinely, it's um, you never know what to expect when you go into a conference anywhere in the world. And I think the panel sessions have been outstanding. The attendance and the buzz around the events um, have made me feel it's like a vibrant Asia, which is really good to feel. So let's come up with one decent takeaway from what's your best takeaway from this week? Okay, so, so not a takeaway, but more like a, a tidbit. Yeah, a detail, a, if you a will. Detail, I like it. <laughs> um, no, I, I, I really enjoyed it actually. So there was one panel that actually you were moderating um, talking about execution and someone was talking about how they'd had conversations with clients where they now design algos to lose money in the first 30 seconds because they looked at the data and if they do too well in the first 30 seconds, it's ultimately detrimental to the execution. So now the algo is designed to basically deliberately do badly in the first 30 seconds and then do well the rest of the time, Yep. which I thought was... It's quite brilliant. 
I mean, mind-bogglingly, like... Well, but the thing, this is no different in many ways to what I've always said algo should do, and that is an algo should have the ability to say, you know, particularly when you're talking about intuitive algos that are looking at market conditions, like, if this is starting to run away, if I'm selling, you know, like three yards of cable and it's starting to run away from me, then the algo should have the ability to say, stick a bid in a primary venue and buy some. Go and buy 20 million. That will slow momentum down. And it will probably cause us more bad. And then you can re- you can reset the algo, slow the pace down, and do it. But at the moment, they can't do that. So I, I absolutely get what that person was saying. I know, but it also feels a bit silly, right? Having to design an algo to deliberately, like, lose for 30 seconds. Yeah, but guess what? I mean, like, you know, I mean, back in the day, you, you sit and go, like, you look at a trader, a voice trader like myself back in the day, you're like, well, I've got to sell two yards of sterling. Why have I just bought 30 million? Well, I bought thirty million to give an impression out there that I'm done, and it's it's all about it's all about signaling risk. But yeah, well, Colin lost for twenty years so that he could win the last one and then retire. Isn't that how it worked? Uh, I believe that's what happened last night, wasn't it? <laughs> yeah, I think we walked out flush. I mean, my takeaway actually was nothing to do with the conferences apart from the fact that someone turned and said, "If you really want to come, we had some really good combative panels, particularly today in Hong Kong. Uh, your crypto panel was outstanding." And then someone tonight said, "If you really want a crypto, if you really want a combative panel, you get a crypto person, a CrossFit person, and a vegan. <laughs> None of those people are ever gonna shift their position ever." Um, so yes. Um, I've got some bad news for you though what Um, I've just realised I put a decimal point in the wrong place and actually we're somewhat short although we were big big winners last night we're somewhat short of a Caribbean island so no, it ain't happening. Next, you're going to tell me it was denominated in Hong Kong dollars, not US. Uh, um, actually, it was in Hong Kong dollars, and I got the decimal point in the wrong place. So we're looking at uh, like so we're in debt now. Is what you're telling me? No, no, no. We're still we're still winners. Um, however, this allows me to say, as I usually do, we'll be back next week. <laughs> um, thanks very much for listening, and uh, yes, we'll, we will be back next week. And Julie, we didn't mean it. It was just a joke. Ha ha ha! Thanks for listening.